Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we're going to learn about the law of Moses and how Christ has fulfilled the law for those who believe in Him. So early arguments in the church, even arguments today between Jewish and Gentile believers, often revolve around a theological disagreement over the law of Moses. The word law is translated from the Hebrew word Torah and means instruction. So this instruction was intricately woven into what is called the Mosaic Covenant and includes 613 positive and negative obligations, essentially a long list of do's and don'ts. While the law functioned as a binding and unbreakable unit, it can be generally divided into three areas of instruction. The moral law, often labeled as the Ten Commandments. This part governed the life-giving moral guidance given to Israel in principles of right and wrong. It governed the relationship between man and God and fellow men. The judgments, civil, and social law. This part governed Israel in her secular, social, political, and economic life and govern the nation on principles of right and wrong in the relationships between fellow men. And lastly, the ordinances or the ceremonial law. This was the religious portion of the law which guided Israel in her worship and spiritual relationship and fellowship with God. It encompassed the priesthood, the tabernacle, and its sacrifices. So throughout these arguments regarding the observance of the Old Testament laws, the church has largely resolved to the conclusion that we, the church, are no longer under the law, but are under grace. Now, this sounds plausible at first, given that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. His statement implies that God's law or instruction has either been done away with or is replaced with a new law. But Paul also said in Romans chapter 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetedness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. So I believe the church's view regarding the law of Moses has been misinformed in part by its improper understanding of her relationship with Israel. The church either believes they are the new Israel, what we call replacement theology, or they view the church as something new and fully separate from Israel, what is called separation theology. And both views are unbiblical and imply that God has replaced Israel with a new group of people called the church, or that he has abolished his law for Israel by making a new covenant with them. On the contrary, God's law and many of his statutes which he gave to Israel are eternal. For example, the Lord established both the Sabbath and the Feast of Passover as eternal ordinances with Israel. And he also established the Aaronic priesthood as an eternal service unto the Lord. Yeshua himself said in Matthew chapter 5, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. These scriptures contradict the entirety of the church's assumption that the law has somehow ended as an unfortunate dispensation for the Jewish people. This old or irrelevant dispensation, which was given only to the Israelites, was for them to suffer through until Christ would come. But then, because of Israel's rejection of their Messiah, the Lord would then turn his full attention to the Gentiles, who could now enjoy the blessings of the new covenant promises 
without any obligation to uphold God's biblical and moral foundation that he established through their Mosaic law. Yeshua's very statement, till all is fulfilled, summarily includes, but is not limited to, for example, the feasts of the Lord. These holy convocations point not only to the first advent of Christ, but his return as well. This prophetic declaration by Yeshua, till all is fulfilled, also implies the complete physical and spiritual restoration of Israel's governance, which is comprised of both the throne of David and the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, because the throne of David and the Levitical priesthood will one day be restored by Christ, God's law, which is his instruction to Israel, will govern them up to and through the millennial kingdom. It should now be evident that Paul never declared the end of the law in the book of Romans. He was simply declaring the end of the law as a means of instruction leading to righteousness. Paul affirmed that salvation is found only by faith in Christ, Yeshua, and not by any works of the flesh learned through the law of Moses. We read in Hebrews chapter 8, But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he's also mediator of a better, new covenant, which was established on better promises. This new and better covenant that Yeshua made with Israel came with a promise in Jeremiah 31. It reads, I, God, will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So therefore God's law would not be learned through our old sinful nature and hearts of stone, but rather the old instruction now would be revealed through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit and it would be eternally written into our new nature and hearts of flesh. So in other words, Israel was to become one with Christ and his eternal law. So next I want to talk about God's law versus his covenants. It's important for us to make a distinction between God's law and his covenants. A covenant is a legally binding contract between two parties, each with their respective obligations. I like to think of God's covenants as a marriage vow, like what the Jewish people would call a ketubah, a marriage contract. God's eternal and perfect law was thereby attached to the contract to make it binding upon all Israel. This contract, as we know, was provisional and came with blessings and curses, namely the curse of death, which came through violation of the law. In differentiation to a contract, God's law has stood by itself as an eternal truth that existed before creation. For example, the commandment to not commit murder was never done away with when Christ died on the cross. No, what died on the cross was God's eternal condemnation for those who have committed murder, but are now forgiven in Christ. Because of Christ's propitiation for our sin, which was his fulfillment of the law of sin and death by his crucifixion, a person who has committed murder can repent and be forgiven of their sin by believing that Yeshua died for their sin and by receiving him as their Lord and Savior. So, hence we are saved by God's grace alone and not by any instruction of the law. And nor are we saved by any human effort to fulfill the legally binding Mosaic contract, which came with the penalty of death to any person who broke the law, which is namely everyone. As we read in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. So once again, God's law is uncreated and has eternally existed with him and within him. And since nothing exists apart from him, his law exists because of him. And it is this eternal and perfect law that reveals his hidden nature to creation. 
And therefore, when God promised to write his law in our minds and our hearts, he was telling Israel that he intended to write his nature into our created being. This was the promise contained within the Aaronic priestly blessing, where the Lord wrote this prayer to Israel. In Numbers chapter 6, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, his glory shine upon you, and be gracious, show his mercy to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his essence upon you, and give you his peace, his shalom. God's eternal law was to become a part of us and is, in fact, inseparable from our new nature, which is in Christ. The Lord has made us a new creation by giving us a new spirit, the spirit of the living God that dwells within us. And since God is love, it now becomes obvious that in 1 John chapter 4, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Some people call this the law of love. But this law is measured by its attributes, which are called the fruit of the Spirit. And we read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love suffers long in this kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things endures all things. The Talmud relates that it was Rabbi Hillel who authored the well-known statement that the love of one's fellow Jew, Ahavat Yisrael, is the basis of the entire Torah. Hillel had been approached by a Gentile who declared that he wished to convert to Judaism, but only if Hillel would teach him the entire Torah while he stood on one foot. Hillel replied, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is but commentary. Since the law remains an eternal truth about God's nature, and we now have this law of truth, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, we need to understand God's covenants from the perspective of the legal requirements, meaning the contractual obligations that are stipulated under each one. Regarding the covenant with Abraham, God promised the land of Canaan to the descendants of Israel as an eternal inheritance. Abraham's obligation in return was to circumcise his flesh. Regarding the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic law, the Lord imparted his moral standards for the nation of Israel, these being the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial and civil laws that we talked about earlier. The Mosaic covenant thereby made God's eternal laws binding upon the Jewish people, blessing the nation of Israel when they obeyed his law and cursing them when they did not. Israel's curses under the law would only be annulled in Christ. The Lord then established the eternal priesthood of Aaron and his sons along with all its services and sacrifices that would be also fulfilled in Christ. This law of sin and propitiation for sin or atonement has now forever been written into our minds and our hearts. As the Lord promised Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. For this reason, when we take communion, we are continually reminded of the Lord's propitiation. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord now also established his eternal feasts and holy convocations with the nation of Israel, including the Sabbath, all pointing to her redemption and eternal rest that would only come through her Messiah. And lastly, regarding the new covenant, Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law and replaced the old contract with a new one. This new contract does not do away with the law, 
but takes away the contractual obligations under the Old Covenant to fulfill the laws and means of righteousness. It also does not do away with Israel's national responsibilities that are foundational to the kingdom of God. In other words, personal salvation was never achieved through corporate commitment, such as attending synagogue or church. Salvation is an individual decision and therefore a unique marriage covenant between God and every man and woman. Still, there are national responsibilities for Israel, and even more so now for the church, which is the larger assembly of Israel and the nations who have been grafted into her. And so therefore we read in Hebrews chapter 10, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. So next, I want to talk a little bit more about the Mosaic Law. Now that we understand that the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary contract, but the Law of Moses continues to exist as an eternal revelation of God's perfect nature, how are we, the Church, to approach the Mosaic Law? We certainly cannot come back under the bondage of the Old Covenant contract, for with it came punishment and death, which is the curse of the law. Yeshua took away this curse by fulfilling the law of sin and death, and he became our curse by dying on the cross for our sins. So we can now approach God's law with grace rather than condemnation. And when we fail, God's mercy prevails because the blood of Yeshua has already covered us. As we read in 1 John chapter 3, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. And still we know that God's mercy and grace are not a license to sin. If the law is an eternal truth about God's nature, and Yeshua has not done away with it, then it appears logical that Israel as a nation is still corporately bound to God's eternal expectations. And once again, these are not a means of salvation but will be used to set up the civil and moral foundation of the Messianic kingdom that Christ will establish through Israel when he returns. As we read in Isaiah chapter 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach, which is instruct, us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, who explicitly is called to instruct the nations in the ways of the Lord? Well, it is Israel, and now the larger assembly of the nations that have been grafted into her, which is the church. God's law, his nature, will be revealed through Zion. And the ways of the Lord, God's instruction, will go forth from Jerusalem. If God has written his law in our hearts and minds, then he is telling his people that we will be sent into the nations of the earth to reveal his perfect and loving nature, which is expressly bound within his eternal laws. As we are conformed into the image of Christ, each of us will become the express image of our Heavenly Father. We will therefore not only teach God's laws, but we will become living examples of them. To be clear, I am not speaking of rabbinic Judaism, which has expounded upon God's laws and means of righteousness. I am talking about God's eternal law that remains encapsulated in Scripture, what I like to call biblical Judaism, 
part of which has already been fulfilled in Christ at his first advent, and the complete fulfillment that is yet to be revealed when he returns to establish his millennial kingdom. If we are to become living examples of God's law, we will forever bear the testimony of Christ and how he died on the cross for our sins. We will forever bear Christ's attributes, which are love and mercy. We will forever model his ways, the Sabbath, and the feasts of the Lord. We will forever be his priests, holy unto the Lord, serving our Heavenly Father in his holy temple in Jerusalem. We will forever be his judges, executing his law of justice and righteousness. And we will forever be his kings, shepherding and instructing the nations of the earth in the law of the Lord. So next, let's talk about the law as the foundation. It's not surprising to see why Paul and the early disciples extensively quoted from the Old Testament. After all, it would take nearly 400 years for the New Testament to be fully canonized. But I believe the more important realization is that the early church was built upon the foundation of the Mosaic Law that was given to Israel. Christianity was never intended to replace biblical Judaism, nor substitute the Jewish people with the Gentile nations, who would create a new religion apart from Israel. Christianity was and remains the fulfillment of every promise given to Abraham for the nation of Israel, and now also those from the nations who have been grafted into God's family, into Israel, becoming one with the Jewish people and fellow heirs and partakers of these same covenant promises and blessings. If the Gentiles have been grafted into Israel, then they've also been grafted into God's law, which is the foundation for the Messianic kingdom. These include God's moral law, eternally written on our hearts, His ceremonial law in which we as a kingdom of priests will serve Him in His temple, and God's civil law in which we, by the authority of Christ, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Removing God's law from Christianity is just another subtle form of replacement theology. And anyone holding to these opinions is incorrectly believing that God has somehow rejected everything old and started over, creating a new nation called the church that replaces Israel and eradicating the foundation of God's kingdom. It also implies that God's Mosaic law was somehow imperfect, even though Scripture tells us otherwise. As King David said in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Yeshua is that perfect law. But it should not surprise anyone that he taught from and quoted from the Mosaic Law. Well, why? Because God's law is both eternal and it is perfect. It is we who are finite and imperfect. Fallen and broken people that have been separated from God through sin cannot fulfill a perfect law. Nor can they make themselves perfect by impossibly trying to fulfill a perfect law and rising to a standard of perfection they can never attain. Only God can make us a new creation in Christ, building upon the foundation of truth He established with the nation of Israel. He has given us a new incorruptible spirit that is inclined towards His will, and He is conforming us into His image, making us living examples of His perfect law. It is exclusively God who can take a flawed person and make them a new perfect creation. If God's law is perfect, and we know that he is recreating us into his perfect image, then this perfect image now includes his perfect and eternal law written on our hearts and minds. And for this reason, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
When God's perfect nature shines through us, then our faith establishes God's perfect and eternal law as an express image of our Heavenly Father. Next, I want to talk about circumcision. Now, you might still be wondering about the law of circumcision. As we read in Acts chapter 15, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This scripture has been errantly used by the church to negate God's law for the Gentiles. But the only issue addressed here is circumcision as a requirement for salvation. The council in Jerusalem rightfully rejected the assertion that the Gentiles, and for that part, even the Jewish people, required circumcision as a means of obtaining salvation in Christ. As it is written in Acts 15, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Salvation can only come through faith in Christ alone, and not by any works or acts of the flesh, including circumcision. Neither can we add any human works to God's plan of salvation. Nonetheless, the council did provide instruction, meaning laws for the Gentiles, even quoting the law of Moses as a foundation for instruction and righteous conduct. It says in Acts chapter 15, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. The last point to remember regarding circumcision is that it was given to Abraham as a sign of God's covenant with Israel, primarily as it pertained to the inheritance of the land of Canaan. The fact that the Gentiles are excluded from this requirement implies that the Jewish people hold a unique identity within the larger assemblage of global believers that we call the church. And Paul was always careful to distinguish his kinsmen, who he called Israelites, according to the flesh, which he also called of the circumcision. So now let's go ahead and wrap this teaching up. Has God done away with his law? Certainly not. Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses, and he indeed is the perfect law. If Christ now lives in us, then his eternal law does also. The moral code of God's law has now become part of our newly created being. God's ceremonial law, the priesthood service, also lives within us as an eternal reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross, hence our communion. But it also established the foundation for our future service as a kingdom of priests, who we will serve him in his temple. And lastly, the civil code of God's law, the laws governing the conduct of men and laws about the land, will become the foundation of Yeshua's messianic kingdom. And we, the church, will rule and reign with Christ over all the nations of the earth. And Israel will be strategically situated at the very center of Christ's worldly government. And the law he gave to them will become the instruction for all nations. As we read in Zechariah chapter 14, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So are Gentile Christians excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and the law of God that he established by their faith in Christ? No. You have now been joined to the natural branches of Abraham to become one with us, one people of God, and one new man in Christ, Yeshua. You are now part of spiritual Israel and the seed of Abraham. And you, like us, are now under the bond of the new covenant, which is the circumcision of our hearts, 
The indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit continues to instruct, to guide, and to write God's eternal law on our hearts and minds so that our souls would be redeemed and conformed to the kingdom of God. We are perfectly being recreated into the image of Yeshua, who is the express image and nature of our Heavenly Father. May the Lord fulfill His perfect law in us so that we might serve as a witness of His glorious nature in all the earth. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.